good morning, good afternoon, wherever you're listening. Welcome to the Link Duo. I'm here with my co-host Jordan. How are you going, mate? What's up, everybody? Excited for this one. 100%. And we've got our special guest, Tim. Welcome, Tim. Kia ora. Welcome, Tim. Uh, Uncle Tim. Thank you for um, this opportunity. Um, Before we get started, link us in, ads. Let's do it. Tim, across from the ditch on Bluetooth, welcome to the Link Duo. Whereabouts are you located in New Zealand, Uncle Tim? I'm I'm in Wellington, oh, Wellington. bottom bottom of the North Island. Yeah. yeah, nice. And you guys are currently in lockdown as well, too. We are. Yep, we're in level. I think we're day eight, day yep. nine of our level four lockdown, which is like New South Wales ones, <sighs> but harder. <laughs> no, we're still beating you guys in the cases, though. I think I know got, you're beating us. Uh, in the I think we yeah. cracked a thousand now. So, you know, it's like golf. It's supposed to go down. <laughs> it's not supposed this, to go. This up. is our golf band here. Yeah. Oh, good analogy. I like it. I like it already. Um, no, thanks for jumping on today. Um, just the main theme around the podcast today is, uh, you know, we're obviously teachers, and you've obviously had a career in teaching yourself, um, but you've moved on to bigger and better things. And the theme we wanted to base it. Uh, base it around is um, the opportunities in life um, outside the classroom and, and beyond beyond teaching. So uh, thanks for your time. Um, Adam, did you want to start us off? Or? Yeah, I'll start off. All right. So like we're talking about, we're talk- talking about life beyond teaching, but I want to start before beyond. I want to go at the start, like your beginning. Why, why teaching? Why did you choose teaching before you got out of teaching? Why did you choose teaching? What part of, what type of teaching teacher were you? Were you primary, secondary? Yep, yep, yep. Um, well, so I suppose the the first thing is that um, you know, as you as you know, looking at Jordan, uh, one of the one of the things we have in, in our family from Kandavu, Pale and and Quinny is uh, we have a, an amazing ability as um, Fijian men to look quite young. Uh, so what you need to know is that I came to my teaching career quite late. Uh, I didn't start my teaching training until I was 30. Uh, so I had had a decade of, uh, or a little bit more, um, I finished university at sort of 2021, 20, uh, of, of working. Yeah. Uh, and my career for that sort of decade of most of my 20s was uh, audiovisual, corporate corporate audiovisual initially, setting up conferences and things, uh, and then um, got to the UK in when I was about 26, 27, uh, and um, uh, toured with bands. I did video production for oh, bands awesome. for yeah. about four, four or five years. Um, and so in terms of why teaching, it, it sort of got, it's, it sort of has a, as a, as a point at either end of that my my 20s I suppose um, one was at the start when I came out of university I'd done my degree and I was quite interested I had a couple of things in my head I thought maybe I'd go into foreign affairs or that kind of stuff um, I looked at the criteria for that and they said oh you need either a law degree or an economics degree on top of your or your BA and I went nah can't be bothered um, I'm not going back for another four years of uni uh, and then I looked at teaching and then I remember thinking to myself, and I would have been 21, I suppose. I remember thinking, what can I teach kids when I'm 21? You know, uh, what can I do? You know, I didn't want to be that teacher standing in them, you know, for only four years away from, you know, my, in my head, I wanted to teach secondary 
And so I thought, no, I need to go and do something. So I did. I did that you know, about ten years, eight, ten years of um, audiovisual work, touring with bands. Um, Any big name bands or? Uh, yeah, so I did a couple of tours with the Chemical Brothers, oh, wow. uh, Nine Inch Nails, uh, Underworld um, for a year and a bit with Underworld, and then a handful of one-off gigs. Um, the funniest one I always, I always did that you do, you do your thing because you know you come to school and you know I've seen your Instagram, Gordon. Yeah, it's all about impressing kids. Um, so you know I'd always try to impress them with all these bands, and then the only ones they were interested in was I did I did a week with uh, the WWE. Oh, 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 yes. <laughs> and that was that was the only one they cared about. I mean, it was the WWF back then. That's yeah. how old I am. But um, yeah, that was the only one they cared about. Um, <laughs> so anyway, coming to the, the the end of that decade, I I got um, got married in the UK, uh, and I remember thinking I can't keep doing. I didn't want to keep doing it because you know I was married, and, and I mean the year Karen and I were engaged, I was on the road for seven months of that year. And I loved touring. I mean, it was a great lifestyle, but it was a hard lifestyle. It took a lot out of you. Um, you know, you, you, you put a lot into it. Um, and it, you know, it took you away from, from family and home for a lot of the time. Uh, and I've got friends who are still touring. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible, yeah. It's, but it, for me, it was a lifestyle and, and it was something I enjoyed doing, but it was something I enjoyed moving on from as well. So when we came back to New Zealand in 03, I looked at, well, let's let's have a look at teaching again. I can come back to teaching. Uh, and so I took myself back to university. Here in New Zealand, they have a one-year uh, diploma that if you've got a degree, you can add on um, a diploma uh, to get teaching certificate. Um, I initially wanted to do secondary. I was quite interested in maybe doing history or social yeah. sciences. Uh, and I was told I'd done a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science with history and a number of other papers. But I I was told when I applied that I didn't have enough points in my history degrees to yeah. be qualified to be a secondary teacher. So they said, well, you can be a primary teacher instead. And I was like, oh, really? Um, <laughs> and then I remember, <laughs> sorry, I'm not doing much, not selling myself as a primary teacher. But they said, one of the things, and I'm actually really glad I went to primary because I'm, um, I absolutely believe primary teachers, I think, learn a lot about what it is to, to, and there's a good and bad about it. What I loved about primary teaching is you learned about what it is to connect with a kid, yeah, what it is to connect with a class. Whereas I think secondary, in the New Zealand model at least, is often, uh, it's more, it's sort of heading more towards a secondary, uh, sorry, a tertiary environment. It's we're the experts, we've got a lot of knowledge, we're going to put it at you. Whether or not the kids process it, well, that's we've just got to put a whole bunch of kids through the system. Um, and I liked being in primary. I, I loved the, the, the diploma. I really enjoyed that year. Um, again, I, I, I was a little bit interested watching some of my classmates who were 21, 22. Yeah. Uh, and you knew, and they said it themselves, they were just tacking on that diploma so that they can go to the UK and do their overseas experience and teach for a couple of years in a UK school, which I don't know if that happens in Aussie. But um and that's fine. I'm, you know, there's, there's no nothing wrong with that at all. I just knew that wasn't for me at the time. And so I really appreciated when I went into the classroom. Um, I, you know, I came with a decade's worth of experience, and, yeah, and stories. Um, you know, there really wasn't having had the lifestyle I had. There wasn't anything a kid could say to me that really shocked me. Um, I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Uh, I kept on going. Um, and I think that. Uh, that experience stood me in good stead. The other thing that I really enjoyed is I went, my first teaching job was in over here in New Zealand, what we call, so our schools are in deciles. So a low decile, one, two, three is essentially a low uh, 
for lack of a better phrase, a low-income, mm. um, lower-class uh, neighborhood community. Um, and my first three years were in a, a Desile two school. And I've often said to teachers going in, you know, um, if you want to start your career well about what it is to connect with young people, you know, in which you, you learn pretty quickly that everything they taught you in teachers' college can throw it out the window. 100%. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, especially it's now, with, man, especially with all this oh, lockdown and online learning stuff. Like, yeah, totally, totally. prepare us for this, but. No, but to work with kids, and I remember thinking, you know, one of the things is, you know, dis- maybe not discipline so much, but that controlling the room. Yeah. And I learned pretty quick that there were young kids there that I realized that um, I kind of flipped it. I realized that I was, for some of them, I was the first male and I was teaching what we call intermediate, so 12 and 13 year olds. Yeah, so that would be Jordan. Yeah, similar age. Um, I, I was I was the first adult male in their life who wasn't going to bash them or 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 you know do something harmful to them and that was really humbling because i was like man all of this paperwork that doesn't matter i just need to meet them where they are Uh, i had one one student um who you know she she basically told me to f off (laughs) every time i met her i wouldn't even first day Fuck you! Oh, okay. Um, And I remember thinking I could go hard at this, or I could do I could flip this. And I remember reading a little story about this uh, nun in South Chicago, which is you know hard 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 part of the world as well. And they she was working in again the similar environment. And they the interviewer said, "How do you do this? How do you work in this environment where it's so demeaning?" And she said, "Every child has dignity. We just need to acknowledge that." You know, and I remember thinking, all I need to do for this child, she wasn't even in my classroom. Like she was in the classroom two doors down, but every time she saw me, she'd tell me to tell me to help. <laughs> um, and uh, so all I did every morning for six months was just greet her and say, kia ora, you know, good morning, hello, and smile. And that was it. I didn't ask her for anything. I didn't, you know, and by the end of about four months, she'd stopped swearing at me every time, but she'd still sort of stink eye or she'd, you know, look at me something. And then by about six months, she'd, she was never like, you know, you're my bestie or anything, but she acknowledged you, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. And I remember thinking for me that was that, you know, um, I suppose answers the question, you know, and I, and I didn't think that at the start. I didn't think that's why I was going into teaching, but if I think of what kept me in teaching, it was that and how do you how do you do in, in that six hours you have with them yeah. something that gives them dignity when they walk out the door. Awesome. Um, I love that. And on the flip, on the flip side with academics, I was always trying to think, I'd say to my students, you know, you need to be better walking out than when you walked in. If, if you're not better walking out than when you walked in today, then I haven't done my job and that's on me and that's on you. But that was kind of my, it was, I tried to keep it quite simple. Um, be better. You know, I'd say to them as they left at the end of Intermina, I said, your role is to be better than me. You know, if, if you and your, 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 your generation aren't better than my generation, and there's some yeah. big gnarly problems coming down the line. And this was 10 years ago. And I was saying this, you know, climate change and, and poverty and, and, you know, any number of things. Um, you know, your generation needs to be better than me because that's not, you know, otherwise society doesn't, doesn't move forward. Um, so that, I suppose, is that, I don't know, it's a big way of answering that first question. Why, <laughs> teaching, so why, why primary? Um, yeah. And, and I... As George says, so I trained in 04, started my first teaching job in 05, yep. uh, and worked in only two, 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 no, 
two primary schools as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, I then took a little break and was working in, in uh, an agency with our Ministry of Education, uh, sort of around IT and stuff for about two years, which was a nice little recharge. And then I went back for two years to another primary school as a deputy principal um, and was there for two years. Uh, and that took me to 2016 to 2018. Uh, and then sort of towards yeah, halfway through 2018, I said, nope. I need to. I need to move on. Yeah, I love that. I love it actually how because we look, we both work in a low socioeconomic area. I love how because that's my vision. Yes, we're there to teach, um, like the curriculum, but it's about our kids. Um, because I know in my first year I had uh, twenty six kids. Out twenty six kids, I had twenty who were like single family or mm. um adopted and all that. It was really good because it was all about, my big thing is it's about creating that relationship with yeah. the students. Definitely, it's awesome yeah. to see that it's not just us, but there's so many people that, especially with being a male in the primary school mm. system, it's really tough because there's not many of us as well. Mm. Yeah, I think I think in a similar vein. I mean, one of the things I remember going to my um, second school and that you had to do the intro. Or some speaker came and they said, "Oh, what do you do?" You know, everyone had to say what they did. Um, and I, I remember because I'd started this at my first school, uh, I always used to do the bus run. I'd just walk out to the gate and help, you know, make sure the kids were getting on the bus. There was two or three buses that pulled up. And I continued this at this other school, which was at the other end of the socioeconomic scale. Um, and I just really enjoyed it because it was a lovely five, ten minutes at the end of each yeah, day yeah. where I had students from other classrooms just getting to know you, yeah. you know. And and sometimes there was you know kids were coming out pretty wound up so you just like you know just touch base give them, and again that give them some dignity see them see them as as a human as they leave this place that maybe has treated them inhumanely or for whatever reason um, I remember when I, was, I don't know what it was but I got um, this car went hooning past and a spanner came flying out the window at me I was like whoa it's like I was like it's definitely New Zealand when it's a drive by spannering not a drive by shooting so. Um, yeah, so you know, but I continued this at this uh, uh, other school, yeah. and and so the speaker came around and I said, oh, "I do the bus run," and everyone kind of cracked up. I said, "No, you're missing the point. It's not about the buses because it's you know it's wet, cold, some days windy, yeah. whatever. So it's never about the buses. It's about the little relationships. And in this high decile place, yeah. it was about the parents who saw you and would come up and get to know you. Yeah, yeah. And those relationships were gold because they were with kids that weren't in my class. They got to know you as, you know, and, and that was a, a little slice. I mean, that was five minutes of my day, 10 minutes every day, which was just worth so much. You know? And, I, and you know, there was a roster and stuff and I'd say, oh, I'll just do it, you know. It's five minutes of my day, I get to know people. That's cool. You know? No, I 100% agree with that because Adam and myself, you know, every, uh, lunch times and recess times, we always try and get out with the kids and, just have a little play with them because we find like that means so much to the kids. And yeah. I've got kids in like, you know, kindy. I'm a yeah. year six teacher, but I've got kids from kindy up to year four that know who I am and I don't even know their names, hey. but that's just from, yeah. you know, just having a play with them on the playground or, or just giving them that time of day to make them feel special as well. So a hundred percent. It doesn't need to be, and this is, yeah, it just needs to be a, yeah. like I said, hello. Yeah. Hey, yeah, how you doing? It. My next question for you is, uh, what were the challenges for you as a teacher? Like whether it was paperwork or dealing with students or other staff members? Yeah, I think there's a lot. And I had, I could probably split my, so my in-class career and then my sort of trying to, you know, my two years as a deputy principal were, were quite a different set. 
Um, I think the classroom ones, I had some funny ones. I had my first, and this was intermediate, so time with 13. I, I, and in here in New Zealand, in your first year teaching, you get release time. You get yeah. like a day a week when you go to you know, first year teaching courses and they do one. So I got went off to one around behavior and I had this kid that had been pretty, pretty, uh, pretty full on um, in lots of different ways. Um, and the, the the facilitator of the session said, oh, I would like to, you know, let's go around because we're talking about how to manage, you know, behavioral challenge or challenges in your classroom or something like that. And they went around and for whatever reason, I was the last person in the circle to go around. So they start around and it's like, well, you know, I've got kids that don't bring pens to class. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And I've got kids that talk back. Oh, yeah. And about opposite me, our friend, oh, I've got a child who jumps up and down on the, on the table. And I was like, oh, you know. And there's little moments around this class. And it got around to me and I went, uh, I've got a male male student who masturbates in class. Oh. And, and it was literally just like you two. And and there was the funniest thing was, as we'd gone around the circle, the facilitator's writing all these things on the board. And there's this, like you've just done, yeah, yeah. around the room. And I'm like totally stunk or serious. I'm not, this is, this is what I've got. Yeah, yeah. What are we going to do? Uh, and the facilitator goes, and then works back and just doesn't write my my problem down, just keeps on going. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, no, nah, no, nah, I know it's awkward, but that's my reality. Yeah, yeah. And literally in this session, we're going to ignore that reality because we're putting into the too hard basket. And I'm like, that's a reality that walks into my classroom every day. And yeah, yeah. and I've got to still give them the dignity. The biggest thing I was worried about that the other boys, and I was in a, this is a, uh, PI, a lot of Māori, uh, 40 cent Māori and PI. Yeah. Some of these big PI boys, if they clock that, so, you know, this kid's going to get bullied and teased yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's all going to work. So I was like, no, I've got to think of his dignity and keeping him safe. Yeah. and But also looking after these PI boys who are going to go, he's making us feel really, you know, because yeah, yeah. it's an awkward thing, right? Um, <laughs> so it, it was one of those, and ended up, we worked through it quite well. And I, you know, with my, DP at the time, we got him in and just had a conversation. He said, mate, he, my DP was pretty classic. He was old school, but he was a straight shooter. He goes, mate, Mr. Kong tells me you've been doing some things, you know, in class that maybe you shouldn't. And t- the kid knew what it was. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, and he wasn't, you know, he was just rubbing himself. He wasn't, you know, dropping his trousers. <laughs> but, so, but it was enough. Everyone knew, you know, if you clocked yeah, it, you know what yeah, he was doing. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> He goes, it feels good, doesn't it, mate? <laughs> the kid's like, <laughs> and he's like, but mate, I understand it, but there's a time and a place, yeah. and the classroom's not it. So what Mr. Kong's going to do is, because it was just about being really simple, um, is if Mr. Kong says hands, you've got to have your hands on the table. That's it. And he's like, okay. And that was it, you know, so it was just, and I just, I wouldn't shout it across the room. I just, you know, because it was always doing silent reading. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was that kind of, and I don't, you know, so you look back and, you know, with the distance of almost 20 years and it's a, a funny story. But um, at the time I was like, what the hell? Yeah, you know. Um, and I think that kind of, but I, I guess what I've always, and this sort of ties to when I, when I moved on from my career, I, I was always struck by how, that facilitator and doing that and not looking to that reality. um, That's the problem, you know, Um, because I think that the greatest challenge in education, and I say that in terms of 
the pressures on teachers as well as the system, is I don't think society really understands what the role of public education is. Um, and that, if I think back through my career, that was always the hard part. You always, internally within your system or in individual schools, you were working through a whole bunch of things. And it might be process, it might be IT, it might yep. be, you know, uh, professional teaching issues or personal teaching issues. It might be, um, you know, it might be, might be pushy parents. It might be, you know, slightly, it might be students. Whatever it is, I think the really big system level stuff is as a society. Um, we expect everything from schools mm. and we expect schools to fix society's brokenness. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and a really small example of this is um, in 07, I think here in, in New Zealand, there was a, a spate of dog attacks uh, around the country and kids, you know, kids were getting bit. So the ministry rolled out for X a lot of money, these dog safety packs that were to go into every school that, that, that schools had to teach. You know, it was a reaction to a thing, to an event, an issue of the day. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, well, where, when am I supposed to teach that? Because my, my schedule's pretty full right now. Um, and and, and, and you know, every school in New Zealand will have that pack, which is, you know, a big box full of lots of classrooms, you know. Um, and I don't know if, you know, that's a lot of taxpayers' money that went into boxes and are now sitting on a shelves in two and a half thousand schools. Um, and I and that's a really again a really small example. But that that what we what we do is we say, well, schools are where our children are, and that's and we've got the society issues, so we'll teach them that. So whether it's financial literacy, whether it's oh we've got an obesity issue, so we're going to do more health and fitness. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got uh, we want to bridge the digital divide, so we're going to put more technology into schools, and therefore we're going to have more digitally savvy children. And I'm yeah. thinking, because I think of my daughter who's just walked by, she's good at TikTok, <laughs> and she can find her way around a, a Google Classroom pretty easy. But she really doesn't care about your digital tools. She's using the tools that you don't have on your curriculum to yeah. connect with her friends and make sense. I mean, she's we're in lockdown. She's using Group Watch with her friends on Disney Plus to watch a movie. Yeah. You know, that that's the she's she's like, oh, Dad, it's another Google Meet. You know, they're so boring. But you know, she will she will spend an hour and a half on Disney Plus Group Watch. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not about the technology or the things we point at. It's about um in, in that small sense, but. I think the greatest challenge to education is that society mostly sees it as a thing that will fix yeah. society yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're young and that's where we can, and they're there six hours a day and we pay teachers. And, and, and at the same time, what hasn't shifted is all of the mechanisms because it's in, in, in our New Zealand context, anyway, public funding, because it's public funding, you have to have public accountability. Mm. So you've got all the tests and all the measurements and all of the reporting that yeah. you have to do. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, this is probably my biggest, my quickest way of summing up the challenge is part of the reason I walked away um, was that I knew what it cost me, you know, I knew what it was costing me every day to do my job as best I could and knowing that I was dropping stuff or missing stuff. And I also knew, I suppose, more at a deeper level how much I was holding and not letting go of. Mm. So um, the, the, it became, you know, Karen said it really well. She says, it's not the stories you tell me that, that freak me out. It's the stories that you don't tell me. Mm. And I remember realizing I, I, I couldn't afford a therapist every day. So I was 
there was a bunch of stories I wasn't telling yeah. Karen because you know it's not fair to her, my partner, and it's not fair to bring home. So you you park it, you know, yeah. you that bus ride home, you just compress it, and so you're just pushing it down every day because the next morning you've got to be Back to the best. smiling yeah. Yeah. teacher yeah. who delivers because that's what they're turning Back to up your to your acting be job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to some degree, and yeah. I think that I remember thinking. Um, and you know that well, and it's a, at its heart, it's well-being, and there's lots of different ways to manage well-being and everything else. And I'm not, you know, there are friends who are excellent teachers who are still in the system, and I absolutely just, you know, honour them. I knew at that point when I left, I couldn't keep paying that cost. I, and I think I remember, I knew I could have been a good principal. I knew I could have been a good, continue to be a good teacher, but I also knew what it would cost, and it was just a straight, a straight calculation for me, you know. Um, in terms of a career and and um for me it was wanting to be a leader in a school a principal's role and that's a whole different skill set from being a teacher you know, in terms of the, the the things you're dealing with um the i i knew if i was going to do it well that was a 10-year run you know mm -hmm. i'd want to do it in one school upskill and then take all that and do it in another school and i was thinking you know i'd be 55 you know my daughters would be 18 and 19 and 16 or whatever. And I, I was like, what, what will I have missed? Yeah, and so that, I don't know, that's sort of, <laughs> you asked about the challenges. and that, No, no, that's, this I, is awesome. That's perfect. This is jam. That's probably why I encapsulate, um, well, if I was to, without sort of telling lots of little stories, yeah. that, that's probably my greatest, the greatest challenge, I think, to at least in New Zealand, and it might be a little bit different in Australia, but the greatest challenge to... The teaching profession and I think public education as a as a function within our society is our society um, underestimates what it asks yeah. Uh, and underestimates what it or doesn't you know if I go right back to that first story mm. we don't even talk about the reality or we, we, there's so many things we don't talk about you mm. know that teachers are holding or that yeah. school leaders yeah. are holding yeah. um, you know you, you'll have seen that in your space you know um, and, and the way, you know, you know, we're mostly judged on the things that you can point at, you know, test mm. scores or mm. attendance and things like that, yep. because that's literally how you get transparency and accountability in a publicly funded system. Yep. The bits that matter are the bits that good teachers, I think, spend hours on yep. and lose yeah, sleep yep. on. Yep. Um, but they're not the bits we're talking about. Yep. You know, um, we only talk about them when they become statistics. Mm -hmm. No. Uh, and so that's kind of why I, and I guess, and it's, uh, you know, I'm happy to put my hand up and say, yeah, I was selfish, but it was also about, you know, speak to well-being, my own well-being and my 100%. family's and, yeah. and moving on. And, and people have said, you know, would you go back? And I just say no. Yeah. But in part because I, you know, I was a teacher for 14 years and I, and I, there's, I think this default belief that if you're a teacher and you're a good one, well, that's, that's it. It's a calling. Yeah. And I kind of went, yeah, I, Maybe it's a calling for some, for a whole bunch of other people. It's just the way to earn a paycheck. Yeah. yeah. And we've got to be okay with it being a job, just like any other job, mm. that if it's yeah. damaging you, it's okay to move on from. Mm. And no. you're not failing. Because I think in, in, a, in, a, in a sort of the personal way, I think our mental model of teachers, there's two ways society see teachers. Not, well, three ways. The, the, the first way is you're Jordan Cheer. You, you know, you're great. You're fantastic. I love you. You're great for my son. And that's it. They know you as a person and they go on. But as a society, 
we see teachers as heroes or angels. Yeah. Oh, sorry, heroes or devils. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there'll be that story of that that one teacher who's you know got in trouble and he's you know, but like and, and you'll me. notice in yeah, <laughs> and, sure. and and you know they're either superheroes. Yeah. Oh, you're yeah. so amazing! You do so yeah. much. And and I'm like, why 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 are you treating me like a superhero? Because as soon as you call me a superhero, the expectation is yeah, that I'll behave exactly. like a superhero. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm a second year teacher who's yeah. just trying to figure out how to well, that's, mark these books and I've then had, get on to tomorrow's. I've had those um my kids I don't even know like my kids know me in my classroom, but like if they're out in the playground they're not doing something right I'll I'll like, be like snap my fingers like do you have to do this put your hat on or whatever but then they'll go home and the parents straight away think I'm bad mean teacher and like i'm happy to have that but then you come to the kids i've had and it's sort of to- to- totally opposite so there's all definitely all the views and, and and i you know i'm happy to hold my hand up and say look i wasn't the best teacher for every yeah. student yeah 100 um but i think the the narrative of what a teacher is just look at movies you know who have we got michelle pfeiffer uh, you know, Dangerous Minds. Um, we've got, you know, Sydney Poitier. All of our teachers. You think you you look through movies. The story we tell about teachers, yeah. they're heroes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We never tell the story about the teacher who's just every day turning up and is yeah. in their classroom at eight o'clock greeting their kids. You know, even on on social. You know, what do we see? That teacher who's got an individual handshake for his class of thirty. Yeah. And I'm going, ah, oh, it's amazing. He's so cool. And I'm like, y- yeah, maybe. <laughs> But if it's not me, does that make me a bad teacher? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. What I'm fascinated with that sort of social, and you've probably seen those on YouTube. Ah, oh, teacher's great. And I'm like, what's the teacher next door feeling at this yeah, point? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who who may not have an individual handshake yeah. for every kid, yeah. but could be an amazing teacher. Yeah. Like I, I feel that pressure now. I'm what a year and a half in, or not even. No, not no actually, not just even, a year. Not even a year. A yeah. year. This is your first proper year. It feels like age. See, it already feels like forever, but <laughs> not even a year yet. But I still feel the pressure. I feel the pressure now, like when um, you know kids see other teachers doing really cool stuff, or yeah. you know, Mister G's kids might be seeing me doing something really cool. But it puts the pressure on them, yeah. and it puts the pressure on me to to sort of step it up. And um, yeah, I don't know. And then there's that comparison between you and other teachers, and that yeah. sort of um, gives you that reputation of what kind of teacher you are to the kids as well. So, And, and I think that's one of the, the seductions, I think, of, of society at the moment, but also sort of let in the social media world is that, and I had this at the school I was at as the DP, I was going, we had four syndicates and they were all really different. Yeah. And I remember saying to them, I said, our, our parent community don't send their students to your syndicate or your syndicate. They send them to this school. Yeah. So, so what are the things internally that when a student moves through this school, they're not having to relearn every time. That's not to say you can't have personality within your, your teams, mm. but there's got to be some consistency because we're a thing called a school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, if 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 you if as a leader you're having to spend a whole bunch of energy, um, you know, either either supporting that teacher who's not the cool teacher, yeah. you know, what is that pressure you're putting on? You know, just in terms of efficient or not efficiency, that's a horrible word, but effectiveness. Yeah. Because actually you want a community and a culture. Mm. It's like if you think of a sports team, you know, and rugby is a really good example. You know, everyone, you know, they're not all wingers yeah. <laughs> and they're not all distributors. Yeah. They need to have 
be able to run, they need to attack. There's a basic yeah, yeah. set, but yeah. they they work as a unit of fifteen. Yeah. Right? Everyone knows um, their roles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so you and, but you're working for each other. Yeah. It's yeah. not you know yeah. the, the the front row the front rowers aren't complaining that they don't get to stand out of the wing, although you know the way the patterns do they do. But yeah. um, you know it's it's that sort of framing. You don't come to watch numbers one to eight. You come yeah. to watch the team play. So yeah, what is yeah, it yeah. to see? as a school see success. But I think that's a real challenge when so much of our, you know, our lesson planning or our, our, or our physical design is you're in this classroom, you've got this stuff, this is your class, even that language, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit like what we were talking about the uncle the other night with, um, with Leigh and my dad, Jordan, yeah. um, you know, what is this village, you know? And we use that. We, we're really glib with that. Oh, it takes a village to raise a child. And then we stick them all into classrooms and, you know, individualize them. And it's like, well, yeah. then that's it's no longer a village, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's a, you know, I think the, the challenges are defaults in terms of how we function in the world are so much designed around individual needs, mm. you know? And what is it to see ourselves as a school, as a cohort, as a team? Um, whilst at the same time honouring the individuals within yeah. it, that's a really tough challenge, you know. Because, yeah, and you guys will know this in your place. There'll be that teacher, you know, who everyone else is carrying, but there'll also be that other teacher who's, you know, pushing themselves super hard, yeah. and that everyone else is going, "Oh, dude, just take it down a notch," you know. One hundred percent. Yes, Jordan. <laughs> and and that's and I think the challenge there is that's a really that's a tough conversation to have yeah. because every, every parent wants to see that positive yeah, yeah, super yeah. because that's their mental model. You yeah. know, that's, that's Michelle Pfeiffer from dangerous minds. That's the, I can't remember the name of the movie with the, the book writers. One, you know, that's every, every TV book, every TV or movie teacher is that individual superhero. Mm. Yeah. And Sorry. you know, even the Avengers only had what four or five of them. Yeah. Um, you know, We've got, I don't know, New Zealand. We've got like eighty thousand teachers. They're not, they're not all superheroes, yeah. <laughs> but they're not all devils as well. Mm. It's a whole bunch of them just trying to do their daily job, and we've got to honour that because that's that's the stuff that matters. I like that. No, I like that as well. I right, we're going from challenges, but as a teacher, what were some of the advice or tips you were given that you like you could still hold on to, or that helped you through your fourteen years of teaching? Uh, yeah, I had one and I'm, I'm blanking on her name, uh, teacher at my, or she was an instructor at my, um, teacher's college. Uh, and she said, when you're in that room, own the room, shape the room, um, in a way that isn't about being, you know, maybe the biggest voice, but own the room in a way that you create the space for, um, for everything within it. To, to, to be contained, to be held, to be honoured. Um, and, and, and I love that because it wasn't about plan this sort of lesson. Yeah. <laughs> it was about knowing when you stand there. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit like being a singer or an artist. You know, when you step onto that stage or, you know, even a stand-up comedian, when you stand on that stage, what are you owning? Because actually they, they've come to see you. Uh, and that's why you're there, and they're, they're expect, there's expectations on you. Yeah. Um, but but own the room, and that means you know it can be little things: how you set up the tables, how you set up where your desk is, how you yeah. set up, you know, your timetable. Um, I had a little. Um, 
so that would probably be my you know my biggest thing own own the space that you're going into that's cool. uh, well, and that comes and I, and I suppose I the exact the exact follow up to that is you're not going to do that on day one right. you know you're going to grow into that you're going to figure out yourself uh, and so I'd say the other thing is and I they talk about it lots but um, I'd say the the key thing to, to honing your craft is to be really reflective. Yeah. You know, I, I did it for my first two years where every end of each week I'd write a diary of the stuff that worked, didn't work. Um, I didn't, probably didn't do it much beyond that, but I would often try to make time to just scribble my notes myself or, or to talk with a friend or, you know, you're always constantly trying to adjust it, you know? Um, yeah. And I think as you get better at it and more confident, you'll actually adjust it in real time. Yeah. Like being a reflective teacher is paying attention to what's going on around you, mm. like keeping your heads up. Um, I, I remember thinking, and, and in a real practical way, and this was just me, one of the things in, a, in terms of advice is um, if you have a table or if you have a workspace, I, I cleared mine down every single day. It took me a couple of years to figure this yeah. out, but I cleared it down every day. So I would literally process every piece of paper or everything that was on my desk. I'd either file it, check it somewhere, or put it in the recycling. Um, everything went off my desk. All I'd leave on my desk was had a can or a coffee mug with a handful of pens uh, and maybe you know the first piece of paper I needed for the morning yeah. uh, and I was really diligent that that was a, a physical process that I do at the end of every single day and I teachers because sometimes you go to teachers on you know and they're just everything's everywhere and they're really creative and everything's everywhere the yeah. things are piled up um, and someone said to me, oh, my God, how do you do that? You know, you, are you OCD? I was like, no, 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 this is actually a, this is a process for me. This yeah. is how I process out my day. But the other thing is it, it means that when I walk in every morning, the next morning, 7.30, 7.45, yeah. even if I've been rushed or, you know, it's been a bit of a mare at home or traffics, whatever it is, um, I walk into a clean slate, mm-hmm. like yeah. a literal or physical representation of a clean slate. So and the other thing that was really important for me was it meant that when I walked in, I was already there for them. Yeah. yeah. So if so kids good. were there, I would walk in and I wasn't automatically going, oh, shivers, where's my stuff? I've yeah, got to yeah. sort this. Or I was I was present. And yeah. that, I think, is the, the trick to owning the room, being that's present. Awesome. And that's really hard in a digital world where this thing oh, yeah. is just, you know, yeah. it's just always there. That's awesome. Like Even online learning, I feel that's such a like, – because we're currently this is week – Eight or oh, seven, seven, seven. And You're winning. Oh, we're, we're winning. <laughs> not a um, not a cricket match, not a test match. Um, but yeah, like, well, I at in school, at school, I had my routines that helped me get through my days. But with this online learning, I'm finding it's a struggle to like own my classroom with my kids because yep. I get. I miss half my kids anyway because they don't turn up to lessons or anything. Half of them don't do their work. But that's I, – I love that about, like, owning the classroom. That is such a um, – I reckon that's perfect advice for, like, first years, five, yeah. five years. Like, that is such good advice you got from your um, – when you were at teacher school. That's awesome. Yeah, and she and she was a teacher who who taught in low socioeconomic as well. Yeah. So, you know, she was pretty straight up. Um, and I had a couple of good teachers uh, in my in in most training weeks who were really straight up as well. Um, who said, you know, you, 
and and it goes to that point I said earlier, give them dignity by seeing them. Yeah. yeah. Um, another really simple one, and I know this often comes up, and people kind of roll their eyes, but it's, but it's particularly for our Maori and Pacifica is learn how to pronounce their name. Yeah. <laughs> like just you know, and and oh, everyone rolls their eyes, going ah, you know, there's bigger issues. Like no, that's... if 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 you can say their name. And, and and ask them, like, pronounce it and then say, did I say that right? And I would do that, you know, you'd go into a class and it, you're a, a fellow or whatever. And I would literally have to do the right. And I was, I would, that was my, you ask them their yeah. name. Yeah. Am I saying it right? You know, give them the dignity to actually yeah. correct you, yeah. you know. Yeah. And that's, it's little things like that where it's, it all comes back to, and that's straight, you know, that, that's, a, that's a two-edged thing. You're giving them dignity by acknowledging yeah. who they are, seeing them. But you're also owning the space by acknowledging. Actually, part of my thing is I'm going to make, uh, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do right, and I'm going to see you for who you are. So it, it flips both ways. Like I'm all right. So I grew up in um in Newcastle, Newcastle Hunter Valley, um in Australia, and I went to a school with all Caucasian, all white Aussies, and my first job is in um, Sydney, which is highly um, multicultural. I had mm. one student, like one Australian in my class. Um, everything was like Pacific Islands. I had a couple from like Asia, a couple from Europe. But it took me, and I'm I'm really bad at pronouncing names. Like my my partner is um, New Zealand. She's Kiwi, and I can't pronounce her last name. So, but um, I've tried to really try hard to learn those kids' names, and it was really it was a big culture shock for me as well, mm. coming from where I was right where I grew up. But yeah, totally get the whole being able to pronounce a name. My first year, I think, because I did um, the awards night, some of the names, oh, it took like literally took me hours to learn oh, to str- sit there and learn the last names. I struggle with the Middle Eastern names. <laughs> so, so one of the things that I always think of is the commentators. Now, some of the commentators on the footy, yeah, uh, are really really butcher them. But there's a number when you actually, and occasionally you'll see, you get the behind the scenes, and they'll actually have written it all out. So they actually spell them phonetically with the jersey numbers. Yeah. So they're actually, so it's, it's thinking about it that way. What are the, like there's no shame in, yeah. in just using a pen and paper and in that, you know, your first set of kids, actually phonetically, just do it phonetically. Yeah. You know, so there is, um, and and I, and again, I, I know some, often people go, that becomes when people roll their eyes out because there's so many other bigger issues. But I think if you're a first year teacher starting out yeah. and it's about, or an early, you know, just getting into it, finding your groove, um, that, because actually if you, <laughs> if you pronounce their name right, they're going to, they're going to, or straight up respect you because yeah, 100%. In, you might be the first teacher that's ever done that. So straight away, yeah. <laughs> you're getting them on your side. So it's not, it's a, it's a self-serving thing, really, yeah. um, in terms of behavior or in terms of uh, getting them to connect with you. So, yeah, I mean, that's a more practical one. But that other one about clearing your table and being present, being able to walk into the room every single day, yeah. that 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 was, if I think of the, sorry, the latter half of my second half, last six years of my yeah. that was gold. That allowed me to, to pick up other work, to be in a headspace where, awesome, yeah. and, you know, you, the first couple of times, it's like, oh my god, I'm spending half an hour. Then, you know, where do I file this? Where do I put that? Yeah. But you, you you figure out your own rhythms and you get into it. It's like it's like anything. You practice at a thing, you're going to get better at it. Yeah. Um, and I think the challenge to teachers is we're asked to do you, you're asked to do so much. So there's this whole well, we're learning all the time. It's like yeah, but learning's actually really draining. That's why my kids yeah. come home just exhausted. So to so be kind to yourself, pick a few things to learn, practice them. Yeah. You know. Um, cool. 
it's the same thing, sport, music. Um, you know, Dan Carter didn't get good at kicking a football by doing it once or twice. No. He kicked every single day. Um, just following on from what we're just talking about now, um, you know, you've spoken about um, sort of looking after the well-being of your students, um, even like uh, talking about acknowledging their dignity and stuff like that. But what about yourself? What are some things you did for your own mental health? Um, like to um, sort of – were there ever times where you, you know, just took a, a day during the week just for yourself or anything like that? Or And like you also said, you, you had a diary that you wrote things down. What – what did you do for yourself for your own mental health, like as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, I think as I alluded to earlier, it got to the point where it's nothing I could do, yeah. <laughs> um, and I had to decompress. What was interesting, or walk away. What was interesting with that was I realised sort of afterwards how burnt out I was, mm. and I think that's the great challenge. Um, burnout's not like running into a wall or getting hit in a tackle. It just it just keeps building and building, and I think. Uh, all of those things I've described to help reset <laughs> can actually become, you know, a bit damaging if you're going, well, actually, I'm resetting every day and going backwards. Um, I think, uh, yeah, so, so for me, uh, so here in Aotearoa, we have uh, four terms and then you have a two-week term between one and two and three and four, a two-week holiday, sorry, between yeah. the, the two terms, uh, or three, three breaks. I would always basically just switch off for the first week. Yeah. I go, no. Yep, Friday, okay, we'll go for beers, whatever, and then I'm out. And I would spend, I would, wouldn't, you know, my bag would drop down. Um, I'd have my laptop open because I was, you know, using it for the web and whatever, but I wouldn't do any work for a week. Yeah. I'd just totally stay away. Uh, and then the second half of that holiday, I'd come back. But it was, and people, you know, and then you'd come back and go, and you know, and even in the summer breaks, I'd, I'd always wait till like a week to go. And and the first day was always just catching up with people. <laughs> And, you know, walking around and, you know, just hanging out. Um, and so that was kind of one of my rhythms of just just stopping, like yeah. not touching your work. Um, one of the and the, one of the things I did in the summer breaks was I would um, I'd, I'd take my because I was always used to wear a watch. I don't so much anymore, but I used to watch wear a watch at school, which just helped me around the routines. And, you know, you, yeah. just in your day, you're going, oh, yep, I need to go check this. I know where I'm supposed to be or where kids need to be. I would um, take my watch off on the, the day after last day of term yeah. and I wouldn't put it back on to like the first week of February when we're going back to school because <laughs> I was like, nah, I'm off school time. I'm just not even going to have a watch. I'm just going to enjoy my summer. Um, in terms of daily routines, um, I, yeah, to be honest, I probably wasn't the best of it. I probably should have been doing, you know, going for more runs or more things like that, um, doing more fitness. Um, I, I don't know if there was any one particular thing I was doing. Um, I think probably well-being's probably come a lot, you know, been more present, you know, in 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 the conscience. I think not just of education of society in a lot of ways. Um, and I think schools are probably putting in more things. Um, for me, it was things like catching up with friends was always really important, yeah. um, and trying to make you know make time to go for a go for a catch up or go for a drink. Um, I think the other thing, and this probably might get frowned on, is we would always, and one of the two schools I was at, we would always make that end of year celebration really big, yep. you know, yeah. and and uh, it would it was a blowout because actually you know, we need we needed to do that. Um, we weren't doing it every week, uh, you know, but that Christmas one was always a really yep we're going to go large. Um, Love that. But Eddie. we're going to look after we're going to look after each other as well, you know. No spanners uh, so thrown out the window at those 
no spanners oh. at those. Not that I'm aware <laughs> of. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So there's little, and you know, um, you know, yoga and bits and pieces. I, oh, I, I did do yoga for about six months in one of these. But um, I'm going to show how rubbish I am at yoga. But I would always, they, they always have the warm down in yoga. Like yeah. at the end, they do the thing, and I'd always fall asleep. <laughs> I'd always literally, and the, you'd hear the instructor go, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, man. I'm too Fijian to do yoga. I keep falling asleep. <laughs> so I stopped doing yoga. But, um, yeah. So I probably could have been better at all that. I, I still don't, I don't know if that would have kept me in the, in the, in the sector longer. Yeah. Um, cause like I said, I was, I was pretty burnt out, um, when I left. All right, mine's, I want to get back to the system, like the education system. You started out in 2007 and you finished in 2005. Uh, five, 2005, five, sorry, yeah. 2005 yeah, and you finished in 2018. Was there a big change from 2005 when you started out to 2018 with the whole education system? Because I know in Australia we get a new curriculum every couple of years hmm. and all the new things, but how was, was there any big changes or throughout your system from going from a teacher to a deputy or anything, was there any big changes in your, like in the education system of New Zealand? Well, I think politically, I mean, I think from about, oh, I'm just trying to run the timeline, from about 09 to about, the, oh, to about 14, 15, uh, we had national standards. Yeah. Uh, so that was a big political and, and, and a much more uh, standards-based assessment in primary, uh, and it changed a whole bunch of stuff. Um, at the same time, we had a, a very uh, prescriptive um, and open curriculum. Uh, our, our New Zealand education system is very decentralised. What that means is every school in New Zealand is essentially a self-managing uh, unit. Yeah. Uh, it has a board and a, a principal, uh, and it has the New Zealand curriculum, which all schools have, um, public schools. But its uh, school curriculum is designed by the school. So it has to map onto the New Zealand curriculum. Uh, and so the New Zealand curriculum, by definition, it's quite a thin booklet, but it's very broad. So, yeah. so you know, um, and then the actual lessons or the, the school curriculum is designed by the school. So in, in some ways, it's quite unique. Um, you know, as I understand it, Australia, it's quite, con uh, I think I'm getting my prescriptors and proscriptors mixed up. But, you know, there's a quite a regular cadence to, you know, yeah. what's taught in Australian yeah, schools. Yeah, you know, yeah. Term one, you do this, term two, you do that. Whereas in New Zealand, it's not that at all, um, oh. you know depending on the region and, and in part that's designed to, to reflect uh, the multitude of, you know, whether you're, if you're an urban school in inner city school in, in Auckland or Wellington, you're quite different from a rural school of, yeah. you know, 20 kids in, in East Cape or something or Ruatoria. Um, and so the, the curriculum's designed to allow communities to, and the schools within them to, to, um, shape their, their teaching accordingly. You know, there's no point just all having science done the same way. If you live in the alpine environment or if you live in a, a coastal environment, yeah. there's different opportunities to teach science 100%. and nature. And, and so you, the curriculum's designed to to capture that. I think national standards uh, as a default focus much more intently on on um, math scores, reading scores, and writing scores, the, yeah. the three, you know, the big three academic. Um, I think at the same time, though, that was, you know, if I think of my arc of time, it was a it was a battle. It wasn't the war. I think the war is the thing I described earlier. You know, what are society's expectations of public education, and what is it willing to fund? I'm always struck. So in New Zealand, the I think the average annual 
New Zealand government budget for education is about $12 billion, which is a big chunk. It's one of the big uh, for us. Um, in our current, or maybe not so much the current government, but in that way of public transparency and public tax spend, that's you, you want accountability for it. So what are you delivering for that? Yeah. You know, and does that mean better outcomes for businesses, for tradies, for economy, whatever? I'm I'm struck by how, and as sort of said earlier, society uses schools as this constant. We've got to fix a thing. Yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll build a new curriculum, and that you'll address it. So the the greater, and there's two examples of that. So last year, 2020, was our digital curriculum, digital technologies curriculum rollout. Within the next two years, there'll be a histories curriculum rollout, and I'm going. We're still working on the digital stick. You know, <laughs> no one really knows what that means. Um, I think, and so all of those are always in play, and I think they will continue to be. I think the biggest challenge is what we ask of the, so from a political and the society level, that what we ask the, the schools to deliver as a society is not what we're willing to fund it. So public education, so for example, here the teachers, their last contract round, they initially went out asking for 16% pay rise. And I was in the school then and I said to my teachers, I said, so you're all comfortable with higher taxes then? And they went, what do you mean? One or two of them. I went, well, we're all public teachers. We're paid for by taxes. So if everyone's asking for more money from what we have in our taxes, taxes good. Someone's put it you know, like this, they're not, you know. And you can argue, well, you know, teachers deserve more, or nurses deserve more, or police. Yeah. You can always argue that someone else deserves more. Yeah. What I think is that um, what we as a society expect from the system, and therefore the teachers in it, we're not really comfortable um, funding from a collective or a public way. Which is why private schools are success because people go, well, actually, I, I want to put my kid in a private school because I think it's going to be better than a public school because I'm giving it money, yeah. and therefore I'll get a return on it. And I remember saying to a, <laughs> a parent who was moving their kids out of the school I was in, I said, "You realise that the private school teachers train at the same place I trained to become teachers," and yeah, they were we like, <laughs> "What? Do, what do you mean? What do you mean?" He was like. I said, well, we all train at the same place. Like, there's an interesting because, yeah. yeah, like yeah. I said earlier, we hold up our teachers as the yeah. ones delivering the curriculum, so yeah. they're the best thing. And I'm like, you know, they all come from the same. But anyway, um, so all of those are constantly in play, and I think that's a big question. I think that one of the bigger challenges, uh, and I sort of touched on a little bit earlier, and again, it's related to society and its shift is is digital. Yeah. And the the default in digital, because we all have one of these, mm. is an individualization. And that is absolutely counter to a collectively funded model because um, when we live on these phones and all of you know our Google accounts, our Apple yeah, yeah. accounts, our Disney Plus account, our Netflix account, you know, Netflix, it's all, you know, your profile, it all tunes to you, it then feeds you. That becomes our default for how we should get everything. Mm-hmm. You know, Spotify learns what we like, yeah. listen to, and gives us back what we like. And so then when we walk into a school, our default model is, well, um, it needs to give me what I like, yeah. and and my child likes this, so why aren't you giving it that? And I'm like, eh, a, we're not subscription funded, like, well, we kind of are if you think of taxes. But <laughs> there's an a really interesting clash, I think, between how digital has changed how we think as individuals, yeah. 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 and and what we as a collective are willing to fund. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the 
the great challenge, and I can flick you some things I wrote on my blog, Jordan, um, about that is I worry about the school of the future being, you know, we say digital technology, but which version is it? Is it Apple's version, Google's version, or Microsoft's version? Yeah. And people go, well, are they just all tools? And I'm like, no, if you buy Apple, you're buying a certain way of doing things. Yep. And you can see that. I mean, my daughter loves Apple, right? Because yep. it's a brand and because they do really good marketing. Yes. But whether or not it helps her do become a better student, I don't yes. know. Like I said earlier, yes. she spends most of her time on TikTok or chatting with their friends. Yep. The app, iPad's loaded with school-approved apps, yep. but she doesn't touch. Oh, I like so, that. you know. I think that's the greater challenge, right? Yeah, yeah. The greatest challenge to what we are as a society. Because you could argue, well, actually, if we're doing it all ourselves, then, hey, $12 billion goes back to the taxpayer yeah. in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And then you go, well, what about equity? Because there's a whole bunch of people that don't have all those things. And then it's all on, you know, and so I think the greater challenge is how we see how we see public education and its delivery yeah. in, in a society. Mm -hmm. And if our society is all about the rights of the individual, then actually public education is less important. Yeah. Or you're burning out everyone True. because you're expecting it to do the things that yes. Google and Facebook exactly. do. <laughs> um, no, I've, I've, I've noticed that with um, as society, like over time we become those people that, um, you know, at the click of your fingers you can, you can get something like that. Like where I, I think I said it to Adam. We're becoming a society that's becoming fast. patient because, you know, you can get fast things foods. fast. You can pay yeah. the extra money to get something delivered the next day or, um, yeah, we're just, I think technology has just changed us like the way we uh, just, live our lives now. But but that convenience is yeah. the very thing that's burning the planet mm, down. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then we're all going, oh, climate change. Yeah. Well, stop ordering off Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Daniel, if yeah. you're listening to this. Oh, yeah, <laughs> our housemate. No, no, I'm joking. Oh, no. No. Yeah. Um, we've spoken about your career as a teacher. Um, you've sort yeah. of spoken about your reasons for why you left. Where are you now, and how did you get to where you are now? Like, what? Yeah. What are the? What roads led to where you are now? Ah, uh, what roads? That's quite a good one. Um, yes, yeah, so when I walked away in 2018, and I always describe it as walking away. Um, I wrote a really good blog post and a good friend of mine, and this is probably a really wise friend, and I've told the story to other people, so he knows I tell the story, but yeah. he read it for me and he said, every single word in here is true, but what work do you want these words to do? He said, because if you publish that, it's going to do a whole lot of work that you're going to have to follow up on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was really struck by that because I think, again, this – in the model we're in, you know, social influencing, blogging, tweeting, anytime you post a thing, a reaction, or even if it's a response, you know, you're looking for the likes, right? You're looking for um, people to validate yeah, you yeah, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. because you wrote those words. And he was like, what, what work do you want these words to do? And I remember thinking, actually, I don't need to publish that. So I wrote it, but never published it. And, um, and I, I suppose when I think about it, I slipped away. I just, you know, I remember telling my staff and they were like, oh, where are you going? To? They thought I was going to another school. I said, I'm going to nothing. I literally went to nothing. I walked, yeah. um, I finished my job on the Friday. Um, I don't know if you know this, Jordan, but I, my, my dad had called me and said, you know, we know you're pretty burnt out. Um, uh, and this is 2018. 
uh, he said, Mum and I are going to San Francisco to see the family for the Sevens and, and um, we'd love to help you get there. So I finished my job on Friday, yep. went for a few drinks, uh, packed my bag on Saturday, and on Sunday flew to San Francisco for a week. Yeah, nice. Um, nice. And went to the Sevens. This is where I caught up with all the Sydney gang and yep. um, you know William and all those guys. Um, and that was a really, I mean, it was a week in San Francisco. I just caught up with a few friends. I stayed with Nita. Uh, and caught up with a few friends and, you know, just explored San Francisco. And it was this amazing just reconnecting with family, you know, for the first time and with someone I'd never met. Um, but I then spent, uh, Karen, my wife's an accountant, she said to me when we were talking about it, she said uh, she went away and did the numbers with our savings. She said, you can have three months, but at the end of three months, you got to get a job. <laughs> uh, and in a weird way that in a very powerful way that was really healthy because it meant that I didn't have to I mean I came back from California the end of the school holidays and um, literally the first week of the holiday first week of the second the third term another school who I knew I'd colleague there who knew I'd walked away was like can you come and do some relieving <laughs> um, and in a way that was the really healthy bit I was able to yeah. say no I don't need to because I, I had this window. And so I basically just put out some feelers, had a few interviews and coffees. Wellington's that kind of town. Um, a lot of public sector stuff going on. Um, the, the, you know, I think I'd prepped my CV and had a few things and, and another colleague had put me in touch and I did some, wrote some sort of, con what did I do? It was like a, uh, a group had an idea about how they wanted to do something into education. And they just said, oh, we want, just wanted someone to do some research and interview a handful of teachers, just an idea of even if how it would land. And so I wrote that up and, it, you know, helped them because they went, oh, yeah, based on what you said, yeah, no, we're not going to go ahead. Um, and I just negotiated that. That's sort of a, well, I went to them, I said, well, what do you pay as a day rate? They said this and da da da. And I said, oh, I think it'll take me this many days. And we went from there. Um, and I think, in, I mean, my, I suppose my experience, Way back, because when I was touring, I was freelance, so I was comfortable having those conversations around negotiating a thing. But I also asked friends, and a couple of friends, you know, sat with and said, actually, you know, if you want connections, you know, just let us know. And getting to know people, um, there was a similar kind of conversation that um, there was a contract role inside at Internal Affairs uh, at a place called the Service Innovation Lab, um, and that was quite interesting because I didn't really the person who was running at the time was really and said I'd love to have you on board I really like the way you think and the way you connect and so I came into that role a little bit not quite sure what to expect um, but ended up becoming quite a facilitating role and that was one of the things I started to realize so that was just at the end of the three months basically I picked yeah. up a, a fixed term contract for I think it was a year at the time and then that turned into two um, and and what I liked about it is it was an eight to five, and I didn't take anything home. I remember yeah, saying to colleagues, awesome. I, I get to go to work, I get to come back, and I get to have a, you know, eat dinner and watch some TV. Um, and that was a huge mental shift because, as you know, you, you know, whilst the job finishes at between three and five, you're always carrying something. Mm. You know, even if your bag's not full, your head's ticking over, yeah. Yeah. you know. Um, and I didn't have that. And I liked being a job where I wasn't expected to do heaps. I'd come from a leadership role in a school and it was like, no, we just need you to, um, you know, help help around. It was literally just work alongside people. Um, the role I ended up doing within that space was a lot of facilitation. And people were like, oh my God, you know, because I was like, it's actually just like being in front of a class. Yeah. They're just adults. And there's like only 15 of them. Yeah. 
you know, that's not much if you've yeah. taught 30, 30, 12 year olds. <laughs> um, and it was basically facilitating running classes, you know, setting up, okay, we're going to do this activity, that activity. Uh, so it was almost a carbon copy of, of um, what I was doing in a class, but the context was different. You were still trying to communicate complex ideas or get people to work together or keep to time or make sure that they knew where the toilets were. All of that stuff was literally just like working in a classroom, but it was with adults and it was supporting public sector servants to talk to each other. So I think the bit, and I've said this to a couple of friends who are still in the sector, I think that that capacity or that um, skill set you develop as a teacher to uh, facilitate to lead a conversation to to manage a room um, to see to adjust on the fly actually this isn't yeah. working actually I'm going to drop another cue in here actually we're going to wrap this up because we need to go to the next thing um, all of that stuff around you know the stuff you do for planning a lesson just happens for you know and I know like again it's Wellington it's a public sector town it'll be like Canberra I suppose but um, facilitation is a there are private and public sector companies crying out for that. Someone who can can run a session, run a workshop, bring people together, you know, do some songs in the whatever it is, you know, um, throw some games, some warm-up games, you know, all those things, those little things, you know, those little brain boosters you do with kids, yeah. they all still apply with adults. <laughs> they just don't do them very yeah. often because yeah. they're used to sitting in presentations with PowerPoints, you know. Um, so that was my role there, um, and I, I really enjoyed that. That was basically facilitating conversations between multiple public sector agencies and stuff, trying to see how we could work together to create better outcomes for citizens. Um, and I did some work with Archives New Zealand and got to know a couple of people there. Um, so within New Zealand, Archives New Zealand and the National Library are part of are two departments of the Department of Internal Affairs. So we're all linked. Um, and then in November of 2019, one of that colleague that I'd worked with at Archives, uh, her, her dad's Fijian, so we just got to connected a little bit on that level. Yeah. Um, she emailed me and said, "Oh, this job at National Library's rolled up. I think you'd be really good, good for it." And as I said to you the other night, Jordan, that was the uh, about the week I flew to Bali, which is I think the first time I met you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, sort of started this whole vision of what maybe this needed to be, this Digital Pacific. So this. Yeah. Pacific Virtual Museum pilot. So I, I won that role, um, started in January of 2020. Um, and yeah, that project's funded till February of next year. Um, my my role's been to lead it through from, we had nothing in January 2020. We've built built a website and built a bunch of connections. And um, that's a project, interestingly, that's funded by um, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia, uh, but, but implemented that's here. That's our taxes, right? Yeah, mate, but you're going to edit that out, aren't you? No. Um, yeah, it's funded by Australia for, for making a difference in, in the Pacific. Um, so it's quite a unique little project, um, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, I think we've done some really neat stuff. So the website and the project, we've built digitalpacific.org if anyone wants to see it. Um, we'll put the link in the, um, the little bio as well. So. Yeah, yeah, drop it in there. Um, and I can send you the link to my yeah. blog and stuff if it's, yeah. I haven't written anything in it. Yeah. Do you have a certain vision statement for your the job you're in now? Ooh. Like, is there a oh, for where I am now? Yeah, is there like a goal behind it? What's your your main vision for or goal that you want to achieve with it? Uh, I think there's um, so that sort of big the the, the thirty 
the 38 second elevator pitch that we use as to as a project and the site is just one part of that yeah. uh, is to make visible and accessible the digitized cultural heritage um, of people in the Pacific and yeah. of yeah. the Pacific yeah. and that of the Pacific definition was something I added which was to reflect the reality that there are you know the Pacific diaspora is huge just the reality of how um, the economies of the Pacific have worked uh, and the economies of Australia and New Zealand in the first instance but also the US uh, have worked uh, that there are tens, hundreds of thousands of um, people of Pacific Island heritage, um, you know, born in, born away from the Pacific, but still wanting to connect. And I think um, that piece we do around making those records accessible uh, is incredible. So, so our, our, our starting point was museums, galleries, libraries, and archives. Um, and they have thousands, like warehouses of stuff that isn't digitized and isn't on display in their museums, but yeah. it's just sitting in storage uh, of Pacific um, culture, objects, records, photos. Um, yeah, it's, it's just mind-blowing. And I think the, uh, the, the thing is Pacific people, Island people in the first instance don't know they exist because they've been taken from them over the last yeah. two, three hundred years. And if in the second instance, if they do know they exist somewhere in the planet, they don't know where to start looking. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of museums and galleries and libraries. So our aim with the project is how do you start to make that, you know, what are the conversations around making this? You know, if it's digitized, we can show it through the website. But more importantly, what is it to create conversations about what it is to make it more accessible? Um, what is it to do, um, you know, Zoom and Facebook live streams with people in Canberra showing items that they have uh, to broadcast it on Facebook Live into Fiji, but also then... You know, Australia has, I think, as far as I'm aware, the, the, the world's largest Fijian diaspora, you know? Yeah, um, I, only, what is I, it? I only just learned that through you the other night, that Australia yeah, yeah, is yeah. one of the largest Fijian population. Yeah, whereas Aotearoa is more Samoan and yeah. Cook Island because of yeah. our connections with there. Um, and, you know, I think... You, you guys host a lot of uh, Tongan and Samoan home games there in New Zealand, I'm pretty sure. Even yeah, when yeah, it's New Zealand. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's huge. I mean, the Tongans, like, they're, everyone comes out to watch them when they play. It's huge, you know, it's really cool. Um, and I think that that's a wonderful privilege. I think the other piece, and as, you know, Jordan, what we just started to do is how does it, and that's the piece I'm really interested in, because now people are starting to see this stuff or think about this stuff, what is it for, um, and this is, I think, for me, the heart of it, what is it to empower Pacific Islanders to start telling their stories, yeah. to shape their stories? Because when we talk, uh, cultural heritage institutions yeah. are mostly talking Western ones yeah. that are holding stuff from like three, four hundred years of colonial exploration. Um, and that's not to say that's not utterly valid and giving people access to that's important. But what is it for Pacific Islanders to start telling their story in their ways yeah. uh, and to have it seen and be made yeah. accessible as well? You know, whether it's Dr. Trisi, whether that's Tumeli in, in um, at the Solomon Islands Museum, whatever it is, um, that's a really powerful piece. Um, yeah. Uh, so I was listening to your Zoom on Monday. So I, with, and I heard like talking with um, I'm gonna say elders because I know Pete was there and George was there. But where does the passion for the islands come from? For you, because I know you're Fijian, but mm. that passion you guys were um listening when I was listening to, for the islands, where does that come from? Like I'm talking from I I am a white Australian but like I, I love I, I love learning but 
like I'm dating a um, Kiwi Samoan. Hmm. So I do want to learn more, but where does your passion and wanting to show the world, show the islands, the artifacts, the um, history of the islands, where, where does that come from for you? I, I think it's, 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 it's in a very, um, it's in a very amateur way in, in that sense of, uh, I mean, I, in part, I got the role because I am Fijian Chinese. You know, when you when you yeah. talk diversity and institutions wanting diversity, they're literally looking for people that aren't. <laughs> <laughs> so you go, wow, okay, here I am. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But I, I said in my interview, I'm not a librarian. You know that. And they said, no, that's okay. It's actually what we need. Yeah. Um, and I think I come, you know, and there's there's challenges to that because I've had to learn some of the ways where, you know, or you, you know, you shouldn't talk about YouTube as a thing for it because actually librarians and archivists don't like yeah. YouTube because it's not preservation quality. Um, and that's like, okay, cool, cool. Um, uh, so there's been challenges there, but there's also the opportunity to bring a different perspective. And I think for me, that's what I love about diversity. People go, well, how do we do diversity? And I'm like, hire people that don't look like you. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Uh, it's not that hard, you know, because actually – They'll bring a different way of thinking. They'll yeah. bring a different way of seeing the world. They'll different different way of talking. Um, and if our organisations want to be, you know, if it's a tick box exercise, that's fine, run that. But if if you want to see how it shifts or how it, you just got to maybe have them in the room. And yeah, they they probably don't wear. You know, they're going to look a little bit different, sound a little bit different. Maybe you know, but that's kind of what it is. You know. Um, so there's that aspect of it. I think the other bit that blows my mind, and again, I, now I think I said it on Mon was it Monday or even with Dr. T, is that that event at Bali, which was Pete's wedding and Emma's wedding, was actually really blew me away because I'm like, you know, connecting with Jordan, who I'd never met, connecting with Joshua, uh, connecting with, you know, Pete and Emma and their families. And then knowing, and I think I said this with Dr. T, knowing I was there to represent my dad, and I think in my piece, I'd said something about our connections. I think you, I don't know if it was you or Joshua Jordan came up and went, oh, we didn't know uh, we were connected. I can't remember if it was you guys. I think or it might have, yeah. I think it was me. In, yeah. In Bali? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There might have been a few coffee martinis. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, or that no. too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that was the piece that, um, so I don't come from it with, uh, you know, as an archivist, I come with it who says, who, who, who has this incredible privilege to go, hey, to talk to people in librarians at libraries and museums, to talk to the head of the Pacific Collection at Peabody Museum in Harvard, you know, yeah. uh, to talk to the British Museum, to going, actually, can we show this stuff? Because that would be really cool. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of it. On the flip side of that, I guess what I'm really excited by, and as I said around what is it to empower a Pacific voice, there's very much about empowering Pacific um based institutions like the National Archives of Fiji or the um, libraries and museums in, in Samoa or in Papua New Guinea, which is important too and in terms of those structures. But I'm really excited by what is it, and that session on Monday was hopefully the start of a one where actually it's just Pacific Island families talking to each other. Yeah, awesome. Because we're so big and we're so spread, but we don't, you know, we, just, we don't have the conversation to connect. Yeah. And um, um, Opet Aliafayo, who's one of the, become a good friend on this project. He's based at USP and the library's there. He said one of the challenges with Pacific Island traditions is we're oral, we're oral traditions. And so what happens is we forget to record our stories because we always get together and sit around a carver bowl and tell them over and over and over again. 
Well, we forget to record them. <laughs> yeah. And then and then what happens is our old people die, and all the stories die with us. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm fascinated by that opportunity because. You know, whether it's Jordan or whether it's Sean in the States, who's this incredible cinematographer, you know, whether it's Paris Goebbels, who's this amazing, um, you know, choreographer, whether it's, you know, Taika Waititi as a director, whether it's, you know, any number of um, PNG or Solomon Island storytellers, whether it's the, the, the guys from Okeanos Foundation who, are, who have these vaca, these sailing vaca who are just doing incredible things. Um, what is it to, to lift Pacific Island voices? Because I think, um, and I can't remember if I, talk, I think I've talked a little bit with Jordan and, and Peter on this, is most of our mental model, and I said this on Dr. Teresi's one, most of our men, mental model of the Pacific is it's this huge blue thing we fly over when we fly between Sydney and LA. Yeah. Alternatively, it's, it's the, and so it's, you know, there's tiny islands there. We might see them on Google Maps. Um, and the scale of them is, Incredible, you know. It's actually really hard to see some of these islands on Google Maps because they're so small. You have to zoom in so close you can't even see them. Um, and yet, you know, people live there, you know, uh, and there are villages and thriving communities. Um, Rapa Nui, you know, which is Easter Island, is um, the only, uh, and this is one of the stories that breaks your heart, but it's the only culture that they're aware of where written language developed. Uh, independent of Europe or um, Asia, wow. because it was so it's so remote. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it has no written connection yeah. with with letter shapes and sounds. Yeah. Right. And and because of how uh, you know the, the different colonial powers came through and took took those people yeah. and basically enslaved them into I think South America and other places, the elders who knew that died. So we have written evidence of how that language, we can see it. They saw yeah, it, yeah. but they had no one who could read it. And you think that's the bit where you're going, talk about invisible, you know? Um, and, I, and I'm fascinated by the opportunity to start to shape or connect people who are experts in these, in these yeah. fields, whether it's around pottery making and Kandavu and Yahweh, whether it's navigation, whether it's sailing, whether it's singing, whether it's dancing with, I think, a, a you know, a generation like myself, um, who arguably, you know, and, and Jordan's generation, Peter's, who, who, who are absolutely Australian and are absolutely New Zealanders, but um, are starting to see ourselves, I think, as more and more Pacific. And I think the great challenge for both of those nations is the default model of Australia and New Zealand is that they're standalone nations that were settled by <laughs> England, yeah. right? Uh, and they are absolutely Pacific nations, yeah, yeah. which is a different construct altogether. But like, you know, the, the Pacific populations are getting bigger in both nations. So what is it to connect? Because, you know, Jordan and your kids, you know, you may never fly back to Fiji, but that is your homeland yeah. uh, or you, are, you have connections to it. And how do you honor that? I think the other uh, thing is really fascinating is in terms of the privilege of this project, but also starting to lift people, um, you know, like Jordan or Peter to, to connect and tell stories and hear stories yeah. is actually the great, and it's not an existential threat. Climate change is going to put large chunks of these islands underwater. Yeah. You know, some of these islands are, are less than a meter above sea level, you know, uh, and that will happen in this, you know, 
next hundred years, <laughs> you know, and and um, there is a great game being played out across the Pacific at the moment uh, in lots of different ways, um, you know, and if you pay enough attention to, to Pacific Island politics, you, you get some sense of it between Fiji, Samoa uh, and, and all of the other ones. Um, but, you know, Macron and the French president being in, in, in Tahiti, they're very much making a play to be back in the Pacific. Um, people forget that French Polynesia is a domestic territory of France. In the 2024 Olympics, the surfing competition is going to be in Tahiti. The Paris Olympics are held in Paris, yeah. but the surfing comp is going to be in Tahiti because French Polynesia is a domestic territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the longest domestic flight in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Tahiti, it's a nonstop flight, Tahiti to Paris. Wow. Um, and, you know, New Mia, New Caledonia are all very French. Yeah. You know, uh, PNG, third fourth biggest island on the planet. Eight million people live on that planet, on that island. It's the biggest one of all of us. <laughs> you know, over 300 languages spoken. Crazy. And, and if I think, to speak to your query, Adam, yeah. I think that's an incredible opportunity. Yeah. You know, in terms of storytelling, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a niche, but yeah. But oh my God, it's a huge niche. Yeah, because you're setting up, you're setting up a thing for the next generation, for Jordan's kids, his grandkids. You're you're starting that whole generation. Even for your kid, you're the one who's starting those, um, filming those stories, recording those stories for the next generation. That's awesome that you're able to do that. Absolutely, and, and, and I'm not stepping into the space to say that I'm any great expert. I have an opportunity and I'm funded for a thing yeah, to yeah. do something around cultural heritage, but I'm fascinated by it. And I've said this all the way through. I'm fat, you know, our, our model of cultural heritage, so there's three things in that phrase, digitized cultural heritage, that are really quite problematic. Like, what is it to be digitized? Like, yeah. most Pacific Island nations, they can put stuff on YouTube. That's not seen as digitized enough if you're from a Western yeah. perspective, mostly in terms of archives. So that's a tension. The second one is culture and cultural heritage. Like, you know, just because these institutions hold thousands of objects and photos and, yeah. um, you know, is that a cultural heritage or is it the fact that most Pacific Island heritages uh, are oral and in dance and in food and in singing? Mm. Now, if you literally look at our libraries and galleries, they're designed to hold things that we can point at and we yeah. can put on shelves. Yeah. You, you can't put, you know, what, what Emma and Pete danced at their wedding, you can't put that on a shelf. Yeah. You know? So, so where are those spaces that hold that? Yeah, because that's our heritage. Yeah, <laughs> but again, it's invisible because our libraries aren't designed to hold that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know, language comes through as well. Dying off of languages. How do you connect yeah. with those? Um, I'm fascinated and always have been around the mental model of heritage is a thing that looks back. Yeah. You know, I started this and we started this in 2020. I'm excited by. I'm interested in what happens in 2050 when you're looking yeah, back yeah. at 2020. Because actually they'll be looking at your podcast or they're looking at Dr. Teresi's. And what is that story that's being told now? Because that's what will matter in 2050. That's so cool. Honestly, I love that. That's so cool because we are in a digital age, going into a digital age. Um, With your role at the the National Library of New Zealand, what's your... So you're, you're doing your digital cultural heritage website, but what other roles do you have at the library? So that's my substantial role, program manager for Pacific Rich Museum Pilot. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, we sort of, 
you know, as well as leading the the program for you know looking after the vendors and the guys who build the website and managing content partners, um, I sit inside a team that's increasingly looking at lots of different digital options um, and digitised access for New Zealand records. So I'm I'm lucky enough to learn from them and see the different things they're doing. Um, like I said, uh, Archives New Zealand is part of Internal Affairs and Archives New Zealand, uh, a little bit like Archives in Australia, I assume, is um, tasked with the Public Record Public Record Act. So it, it maintains all of the, every public institution in New Zealand has to keep a copy of what it's doing and Archives is supposed to hold all that. Um, yeah, and I think, as I said earlier, the great, you know, technology has changed education, it's changing record keeping. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I've learned you know, when you when you look back and think of records, often you think of paper records, right, in newspapers or shipping lists or yeah. whatever. Um, you know, when when you've rolled out Microsoft Office or you know across your system, your public sector system, when does the copy go to the public record? Is it the first draft or is it the one that people left comments on and edited? Yeah, yeah. And is it, you know, which of those twenty eight copies yeah. is the one that you want in yeah, the public yeah. record? Yeah. Because you know there's a process there that it's reflecting, yeah. uh, and there's, there's a bit of a model of well you collect everything. It's like well then that starts to add up a little bit if you're storing it all somewhere. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm in a space that's sort of starting to push and pull at all those things. Um, I mean, for example, in uh, National Library where I am, uh, I think there's over 170,000 items tagged Cook Islands. You know, um, not all of them are digitised. You know, uh, and digitization costs. So you have to put priorities on what gets digitized and what does not. Um, you know, I'm really excited that one of the things we've helped push at is the archives holds the Samoan land records, um, which New Zealand took over Samoa from the Germans in 1918. Uh, and at that time, they brought all the land records here. Uh, and so until they digitized them and made them available on their website, uh, the only way Samoan people could look at the land records for their villages, and you know, there's very valid claims for who gets what land. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 100 years later, uh, the only way they could see them was to fly to Wellington and yep. book a session in the reading room. And now, because it's digitised, people in Samoa can yep. log online and look at it and see it. Uh, oh. And we're really excited to sharing those. So, as a space and as a library, I'm also working. I'd sort of help the public engagement team in yep. terms of how we're doing events and. Uh, it's just very much on the side and just getting to know them and supporting them. Yeah. Um, there's always lots of ideas. I mean, I think we we have a, uh, it's quite a brutal concrete building, but it has a, some lovely spaces inside. So we're, how do we start, to, as, you know, as I said earlier, about, you know, diversity, actually, what yeah. is it to show more Pacific Island content in the space, you know? Um, yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, I say my contract for this role is till February next year. Yeah. And, Part of my role in this next six months is to hopefully get enough, get all the paperwork written so I yeah. can continue in yeah. the job. Yeah. Um, but I'm also interested in how cultural heritage, um, yeah. you know, because that has a place in, in well, in all countries. But yeah. the opportunity for this is how do we continue to highlight Pacific Island cultural heritage, yeah. given that I think for me, um, yeah, Aotearoa is a Pacific nation. Yeah. You know, Australia is a Pacific nation. That's that's a huge shift, and I think you know, I think as a nation we're probably uh, more attuned to that <laughs> than than Australia is uh, in terms of political leadership and and um, you know the, the majority perspective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think um, 
the next hundred years have some fascinating opportunities for both nations in into the Pacific and the region. Hundred percent. Right, I got. There's two questions left. Um, yep. First one is: Was a change going from teaching to where you are now um, hard or difficult? Did you find it um, difficult going from being a teacher to working at the National Library and doing what you're doing now? I think. I mean, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but yep. the context, the the con, the context shifted. And I'm thinking of my role at the lab, yep. but also here, the context shifts. I'm now in the library. I was in the lab. Yep. But the dispositions and the competencies you develop as a, as a, as a useful teacher, and I use mm -hmm. that word useful deliberately because I, I try not to – I don't want to use a value word, a good teacher or a bad teacher, because you can still be a useful teacher and be a pain in the ass. Um, but <laughs> the useful teacher, I think, is that person who, like I say, is bringing multiple ideas together is setting up a framework to explore yeah. things safely, is has the materials ready, um, is able to, uh, in the moment, adjust what's needed to be done. If you yeah. think of, you know, if you think of, if you're 10 out of 10 day yeah. and how you nail it and how you adjust to everything and how you got everything ready and even if you haven't got that thing ready, you're able to set up something so you yeah. can get away to the photocopier to come back and they, they haven't lost the plot. All of those little things, that's actually what... Um, my role needs in real time because I'm, you know, depending and, and in part because of the way the role is, um, it, it's, it's across multiple things. You know, I work with stakeholders all across the Pacific in museums. I'm hosting Zoom conferences. Yeah. I'm working directly with the developers. I'm trying to look after the finances. I've got to write papers. So there's a whole range. So in some ways, it's very much like being a, a team leader in a teaching yeah. environment in terms of the scale. Um, and, and then at the same time, being present. You know, when you need to be there yeah. for your, and I've only got a team of two, so it's really a, a small team That's of teachers, perfect. if you, if you use that metaphor. Um, and, they, you know, they're really, really positive to work with. Um, so that makes it nice. Um, so I don't think, I think if you don't, I think if you, your, your model of what I do as a teacher is, is this, i.e. in a classroom and in a yeah, school, yeah. what will I do outside of this? I think the thing I'd, I'd say to people who are looking to move on is yeah. well, a couple of things. One, give your space, give yourself time to go and do something else. Yeah, yeah. Give you give your space. Sorry, give yourself time to learn to do something different. Yeah. You know, um, you know, give yourself space and time to let go of the thing. And I and I know, you know, teaching can define you. It really does. You know, because of how society sees us. You know, you say you're a teacher. You're either people are either going to grumble at you about, you know what's wrong with education or they're going to go, Oh my God, I love you. I love you. You're so amazing. We should pay you more. And I'm like, you don't even know me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the dog's kicking off here. Um, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I think that, so yeah, give yourself time and space to, yeah. to move on and to sort of redefine yourself. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I've gotten into a role in which I think, like I say, the competencies are the same. Or similar, you know, the things that I've learned about how to connect with people and how to how to hold a room together um, and how to hold a team together have, have been quite aligned. Um, but I think on the flip side as well, I think if I'd done that three months and then gone, no, oh, you know what, I want to go and do a landscape gardening, I would have gone and done that, yeah. you know. Um, because I think if you give yourself your time to decompress and probably just let go of it, then it's that piece. And it's a little bit like when I went from touring to teaching, I kind of, because I came back and I actually did the 
I missed the enroll, so I had to wait six, eight months before I could get into the course. I was just doing some, you know, stuff that was frustrating. I'd gone back and was just recycling what I'd done before I left New Zealand. Mm. But it also meant I didn't have to be anything, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think if you are looking to change, and I fully appreciate for whatever reason, give yourself time because of like all the things I've described about teaching yeah. being this really full-on role that uh, you know comes to define you, and you know you're, you're second-guessing yourself and all that kind of stuff. If when you need to move on, and you know you'll know that, or your partner will tell you that. Um, then take the time to just reset. You know, I reset at 45, yeah. you know. Uh, like I said, you know, part of our genes are we don't we don't look these things. You know, that's why Jordan's actually like 37. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no one would know. Um, I think give yourself the time to reset, yeah. um, to move on to another thing. I, I wouldn't. And, and and I say that absolutely from a place of privilege, where you know my my partner was working, we had some savings, um, yep. you know, we we own our house, all of that stuff, you know. Um, so I I was absolutely privileged in in and um, in terms of finances and my um, family support to be able to do that, and I absolutely appreciate how everyone can do that. But um, I think that's you know and I. Sample size of one. Me, <laughs> you, you need. If I talk, if you're talking well-being, you need to give yourself time to let go of a thing that utterly defines you. Yeah. You know, and if you've been doing it for more, I mean, I was 14, 15 years. Anything more than five years, um, you need to take that time to to reset. Yeah. I, I, I mean, on the flip side, I think all of the skills you, you have to develop as a useful teacher. Um, uh, are shiftable to other places. You know, the yeah. ability to talk to people, higher, lower, middle, the ability to to create an environment where you can do stuff. Um, you know, are, are all there. You know, yeah. so um, find. You know, I, I think whilst I made the joke about it, ultimately it's just a job, and people, you know, want to just come along and do the job. I think most people enter it teaching because they. Um, have a belief in in helping young people and yeah, making yeah. connections, uh, and I think if you're at the other end and you wanted to get it out, yeah. part of the reset is to find the thing you believe in again. Mm. You know, okay. um, whether that's two or three side hustles, whether that's you know starting up a dog walking business, although yeah. you can't do that in lockdown. But um, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's it's find the thing that, um, and and find the thing that, and I think this is the other challenge I think to walking away from teaching is it's such a Again, our default of it, it's you're in it for life. That's, you know, it, yep. you're, you're, you're born to it and therefore you're going to be it forever. And it's like, well, actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to reset and I just want to give something else a go. Um, and that might mean you do three or four things really quickly. And that's often quite different from our mental. Well, I'm, I'm a teacher, so I'm a teacher for life. Yeah, it's yeah. like, well, I mean, that was one of the challenges for me. Like your calendar had to reset. Yeah. Yeah. Like you stopped thinking in terms. <laughs> or, or, you know, this, this yeah. the semester breaks. Um but yeah, so that I don't know. Did that? I, I, I suppose it hasn't been a hard change because yep. I've been well supported, yep. and because I, I took opportunities that are in front of me. Um, I, and I think if I reflect on what I said right at the start, I think I lent back into what a lot I did as a 26, 27 year old. Yeah. You know, landing in the UK with just a backpack and not knowing where my next job would come from. So I lent into that experience. You know, um, 
because that experience got me on, you know, onto the pyramid stage at Glastonbury doing a headline act. Yeah, that's you know. so cool. Yeah, it is crazy. It was definitely crazy. <laughs> you know, uh, when I look back at it, you know, what was this twenty-seven-year-old doing, doing these yeah. gigs? But you, in some ways, you could say the same as this. You know, what's this forty-five-year-old yeah. guy with no library training working doing a library? But um, I, I think I'm doing a good enough job or a good job, and um, yeah, it's I'm, I'm enjoying it. And that's kind of all you can ask for. We got one from one of our follow followers. Um, and she's just asking, how do we use the skills we have learned in teaching to change careers? And what's the path for that? Yeah, what was the last bit, sir? Um, so how do we use the skills we have learned in teaching to change careers? And what is yeah. the path? What is the path? Path away from teaching. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think there's one, there's one path. I think it's yeah. ultimately... Um, you know, if I think of, of, of me walking away, it was I needed to do what was right for my family. Mm. I knew I could no longer pay the cost. Yeah. Um, and even that was stressful for my daughters. They were like, Dad, but because yeah, again, that identity thing, they were like, oh my God, yeah. oh my God, my dad's no longer a teacher. What is he? You know, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to be here for three months cooking your dinners. Like, but Dad, what are you? You know, and that was a challenge for them. They're like, yeah. what, do I, yeah. what do I say to my friends at school? Um, so you have to be <laughs> um I don't know if there's one path. I think ultimately you have to make a decision. And, you know, and again, so because I, 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 I left halfway through the year and I literally left to nothing. You know, I didn't have another job to go to, which is, again, obviously a position of privilege. Um, and, and you know, I was in a position as a deputy principal. To, you know, I gave my leave. Yeah. It was three months or whatever it was. Uh, and then I was, I was away. And, and I think that's the piece where you probably, in terms of the path, you you probably get to a point where I need to move on, yeah. and you need to move away from the the identity of job and, and what you're doing for your kids to being really functional. About I'm an employee. These are the conditions that I have to give to my employer to move on, you know, uh, and working around that, or whatever that leave break is, or um, you know, and if it's I just want to move to another school, well, that's a that's a different conversation. If it's yeah. I want to move on from from um, the classroom environment is that evaluating, do you want to stay in, you know, public sector related? Like, you know, is it, you know, are you moving into other parts of the public sector? And I think this one of the eye openers for me, and it might be different in New South Wales, because obviously Canberra is where most of your, your federal system is. But, you know, people I think forget how much when they sort of talk about faceless bureaucrats, um, and, you know, we've got to cut down on public sector is every teacher is a public sector worker if yeah. you're in public education. So what are the other capacities in the public sector? Um, you know, currently with COVID, it's nursing, right? So what is it to shift into those kinds of roles where you're doing support roles? Yeah. doesn't mean you have to do, maybe it is, maybe you're retraining as a nurse, but what are the other things that are public sector facing, if that makes sense? Um you know, if you enjoy pee in the outdoors, what is it to go and work in, you know, here in New Zealand, it's the Department of Conservation, you know, um, or, or in those sort of environments. Um, in, in, in roles where you're serving, and that's kind of what public service is. Mm, yeah. So if that that's, you know, if that's your mentality, just exploring those. Like here in yeah, New Zealand, yeah. we have jobs.govt.nz, which is public sector jobs, you know. Uh, you'll, I assume you'll have a New South Wales government one. Yeah, um, yeah. If it's more, you know, fundamental, I need to 
you know, check myself before I wreck myself. Um, I, 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 and obviously I say from a position of privilege, but I'd say if you're going to do a reset, do it. Like yeah. literally just, yeah. just reset, be, yeah, yeah. be brave to go actually, yep, I've got enough savings for a month. Um, because here's the other thing, and it happened with me, as I said earlier, um, I got called up within my first week of being back after the school holidays saying, come and, come and do relief teaching. And that actually was one of my strategies. If I couldn't find anything yeah, in that yeah. three months, I was just going to pick up relief teaching. Yeah. Because the trick with relief teaching is you walk in, you get paid a day rate, you yeah. look look after the kids, you don't have to do any planning, and you walk out at the end yeah, of the day. Yeah. But the system still needs people to do that role because yeah. guys like you who full time need your release or you know, you've got a training yeah. course and the system just has to put someone back in the classroom. Yeah. So that as a as a transition away might be a way to go, actually I've still got a skill set that the system values and will pay me a daily rate on. Yeah. You know, it might mean I end up in you know, three schools in a week and it might mean I'm commuting for a bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um but, you know, it's if it's a if you're in control of it, I think straight away that helps your mental well-being. Yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not in the grind of it. Um, and I think, yeah, in terms of moving away uh, totally, it's just, you know, seeing where you end up. You know, I've got mates, of, or mate who's a principal, and he just said he's got some mates who, who are principals. They've left and just started a pub. <laughs> I love that one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why not? You know? Yeah. Um, you know, and it's that thing of being brave to go, what is it? And again, everyone loves different uh, constraints and yeah, yeah. setups around that. But what is it to go to a thing where I'm actually just I'm happy doing what I want to do? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that in a social media influencer way. I'm yeah, yeah. saying, you know, I think the greatest challenge in teaching is if when you when it's when it's when you're in the zone and it's on, it's amazing. It's a real yeah. privilege and it's fun. Um, but it does become a grind and it's yeah. okay. And, 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 and you can let go of it, I think, to walk away. Um, that doesn't mean you have to go straight to a fun thing. It yeah. might mean I'm just going to do relief teaching for half a year yeah. um, or I'm going to start a little side hustle and do some stuff or I'm going to find another full-time job somewhere else. Um, I suppose I'd say in terms of that path, just be gentle with yourself, yeah. but also yeah. as you move on, but also just be brave. Um, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that you might have to do some relief teaching <laughs> because that skill set still absolutely needed. Um, and that doesn't mean you're a failure because you haven't found something else. Mm. Yeah. Just be really honest with it. I've got a skill set that the system still needs. Yeah. But actually, I don't want to be in a full-time role. Um, uh, I've got my savings. I've taken yeah, care yeah. of all my stuff. Um, and, and I don't, you know, look for those things where, where there are, again, depending on your mindset, like, do you want to be in public service? Well, then find those websites that show that, you know, do you want to go back into a business role? Well, you know, look for that on your websites, you know, your job websites or whatever it is. Um, do I want to start a side hustle that's, you know, yeah. a podcast and YouTube? Well, you know. <laughs> well, you know, honest, like we have, we have talked about ever since online learning, um, we've, we have thought about, all right, what's our side hustle? What are, what are we going to do? And this is like, um, like I, we've always said it, like the link duo is something, it's something small, but it can be something great because it's all about hearing and linking up with people like yourself and others and hearing stories and talking about different topics. And there's definitely an area for that. Yeah. So no, um, no, I appreciate yeah, your so time, Uncle Tim. Like, I just want to say 
I really admire what you're doing. Um, and thank you. Like, it's been a pleasure. Like, uh, I feel like it was meant to be for us to cross paths in Bali. Like, it took us a while, yeah. but we, we got there. But, um, no, ever since uh, knowing you and um, connecting with you, it's been a privilege. And I just want to say thank you. Because no um, you've given me a bit of pride too in my own culture. And, like, I think the older I've gotten, the more proud I've become of my, yeah. my culture, like my Fijian and Samoan heritage. So, but I appreciate the body of work that you're doing too. So, and, and, and I appreciate you hopping on our podcast to share your experience as a teacher and your story of where you are now. Not at all. Thank you, Jordan and Andrew for having me, Adam, sorry, <laughs> having me on. All good, all good. I get caught sorry. everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, very much appreciate it. Um, I hope the edit's not too hard to do in terms of pulling together. Um, and yeah, obviously, you know, we've got our little side hustle with yeah. our, our families to yeah. try and put together as well. So yeah. we keep on pushing on. Um, but yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll flick you some, I'll flick, I can't remember, I've sent you my blog, but I wrote a lot of it when I was teaching. Yeah. Um, and it was just sort of some big thoughts. And you, I look back at something, oh my God. I'll flick them. Some of it's so wanky. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I, if I look back at teaching, I'm, I'm proud of the work. I did as a teacher, as I yeah. said earlier, I, I don't know if I was ever the best teacher for every student, but I don't think anyone ever can be. Um, and I think if I'd say to any teacher who's looking to move on, um, you know, I don't say that in some sort of teacher whisper away, you know, because yeah. I think the system needs good people, but um, it's okay to move on. Yeah. Um, you'll be okay. And I think that's the thing is that you don't, you're not responsible for the system yeah. and for holding up everything that it demands. Um, you're one person. Uh, you're doing a you're doing a job. Uh, if you treat it like that, then yeah. you know, in terms of looking after yourself, you'll be good to move on. All right. Um, so this is um something we do at the end of every podcast is um we ask for one thing you're grateful for today. So before we link out, I just want to know what you're you're grateful for today, Uncle Tim. <clears throat> what am I grateful for today? Um, Yeah, I'm grateful for my dog who barked and you'll have to edit out. He's now asleep <laughs> on the chair behind me uh, because he's a really good reason to get up from my desk and all my Zoom meetings in lockdown to go for, for walks. So I go for big hour-long walks. Yeah, um, that's awesome. And he's he's great. You don't, I mean, I, he doesn't doesn't judge you. He just wants to hang out with you. Uh, and it's good to have that kind of person in your life. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, grateful for, for walks, uh, walks with the dog um, during lockdown. Awesome. All right. Um, yeah. Thank you once again for yeah, joining Devin, us. Thank you so much. That Tim. was a bit of an eye opener. Um, Adam and myself 100%. learned a lot of things there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, appreciate your time. Hopefully, we can get you back on. And I'm looking forward to our journey together within our our little side hustle as well. So appreciate it. Yeah, that'd no, be good. Be good. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me on. Hope, like I say, I hope the edit goes well. Yeah. Uh, good luck for yeah rest of your online lessons. Um, and and I'm happy to if you ever need to throw some sort of a guest person into one of your online sessions, just yeah. give us a shout. Oh, I'll definitely, that'll be fun. Appreciate it. All right, <laughs> All right let's, ready? Link us out. Yep, let's think let's us do out. It. <laughs>